Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 25th, 2023. Uh, 2023 seems to be a year in which we're increasingly lost. We're always looking back to the past to make sense of the future. What can we learn about the past? And one place we've often gone, we collectively, is Rome. We've done lots of shows on the history of Rome and what we can learn. We did one with a very distinguished British classicist, Mary Beard, on what we can learn from the images of Roman autocrats. Beard is uh, a remarkable woman, and it was a tremendous show. She had a book out back then, 12 Caesars. But some people warn us about learning from the past, and particularly from uh, Rome. Um, uh, Edward Watts, uh, an American classicist, has been on the show, warning uh, about what he calls the rhetoric of decline. Americans in particular like to compare themselves with Rome. There have been books like Are We Rome Yet? And Watts wrote a book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome. And of course, there are many Romes. There's the classical Rome, and then, then there's the Eastern Roman Empire of Byzantium. And it's not always about decline. There was one uh, emperor, Justinian I in Byzantium, who uh, resurrected in many ways the Byzantine Empire. So uh, everything in the past isn't always of decline, especially when it comes to Rome. And this is an appropriate subject today because as it happens, we're talking about Justinian, emperor, soldier, and and not state, saint, with my guest, Peter Saris. He's another very distinguished classicist, although I'm not sure he would even call himself a classicist since he studies uh, the Eastern Roman Empire and Byzantium. And he's joining us from his home just outside Cambridge. Peter, uh, the book is just out. Congratulations. Do you think of yourself as a classicist or as a post-classicist? How would you define your broad area of study? Uh, no, I would think my, of myself more as a as a historian of the uh, the medieval world in general, but also the world of the the medieval Christian Empire of Byzantium. Uh, and I think that although the Byzantines uh, described themselves as Roman, and Roman identity was central to the way they constructed the world around them, I think there are fundamental differences in terms of political structure political ideology and culture, which separates the world of Byzantium from the ancient Roman Empire of, of Mary Beard, shall we say. Uh, so get us, of- um, so Peter, thank you for that introduction. Get us from the Rome of Mary Beard or Edwards to the, to, to, to the world of Justinian. Uh, it's what, about five or six hundred years? Is that? Yeah, the, the crucial, there, there are two crucial phases of transformation which, which uh, affect the Roman world, between, which gets you from Mary Beard to me, as it were. The first that is in the, the third century AD, the Roman Empire uh, enters into a profound period of crisis caused by the emergence of simultaneous military threats to north and east. From the north, across the years of the third century, the empire has to face down a series of increasingly confederated and large barbarian enemies 
who are able to break into Roman uh, frontier territories and beyond into the provinces of, of the Roman Empire in the West in particular. Would it be fair uh, to call those tribes the sort of the ancestors of, of Germans today? Um, uh, well, the ancestors of quite a lot of the, the modern European nation states. They're Franks, they're uh, Teutonic, Germanic tribes, uh, various Gothic groups in particular. But the crucial thing really is, is that that coincides with a sudden emergence to Rome's east of a very aggressive superpower rival in the form of the Sasanian Empire of Persia or Iran, who again start launching a series of very aggressive raids into Roman territory in Syria. And what you have is the very lightly governed world of the Roman Empire of the first and second centuries can't really cope with these simultaneous military crises. So what we see in response to that is the emergence of a much more militarized Roman society, a much more bureaucratized Roman society, and a Roman society in which we see a split ultimately between a Western Roman Empire with a Western emperor to face down these Western barbarian invaders and an Eastern Roman Empire with an emperor based in the East primarily to face down the Persians. So, so across the course of the third and the fourth centuries, Rome is transformed that way and the Roman imperial system becomes more bifurcated between East and West. So, so Peter... How much of classical Rome was exported or imported to uh, Byzantium? Well, uh, what we have with the creation of this more devolved system of rule with a, an Eastern emperor and a Western emperor is the new emperors are ruling from new capitals nearer the frontier zones. So to the east, you will end up ultimately from the fourth century on after the reign of Constantine with an emperor ruling from Constantinople. Now, what they bring from the, what they have from the West is a sense of Roman political identity, which in the East comes to be increasingly fused with a sense of Greek uh, cultural identity and Greek use of Greek language, and increasingly a sense of Christian religious identity after the conversion of Constantine and his dynasty. And so at Constantinople, from the fourth century onwards, we start seeing this fusion of Roman political culture, Greek intellectual culture and Christian faith, which will then define the emergent world of Byzantium. In the fifth century, crucially, the Western Roman Empire fragments and succumbs to new barbarian pressures, such that in Gaul, Spain, Italy, North Africa, a, a whole series of new independent and autonomous kingdoms emerge, largely under barbarian uh, rule, leaving the Roman world, as it were, now rule dominated, what remains of the Roman world in the East, dominated from by Constantinople, where we have this new fusion of cultures and ideologies emerging. It's almost as if Britain was defeated by the Nazi Germans and, uh, and America was left standing in a way, is that one potential yeah. analogy? Well, a friend of mine has compared it to imagine uh, Britain is defeated by the Nazis, but the British Empire relocates to Canada. Right. Yeah. So, and and for people who uh, want to learn more about Byzantium, um, Peter is also the author of a very well-received book, Byzantium, a very short introduction, uh, part of the very short introduction series. So thank you for that very short introduction, Peter. Let's get to Justinian. What was the world that he first of all give us some some background because it seems to reflect the interesting sociology uh mm -hmm. of of byzantium that he, he wasn't born as an aristocrat was he no not at all he owes his rise to power to his uncle so it's a slightly complicated story but the family are from 
the empire's war-torn provinces in the Balkans. His uncle, Justin, begins life in great poverty in what is the least urbanized, most militarily disrupted part of the empire ruled by Constantinople in what's now in southern Serbia. Uh, his uncle uh, is raised in great poverty, we're told he's a swineherd, and like a lot of poor young men, he decides to try to forge a career for himself by joining the Roman army, and he and his friends walk to Constantinople. Uh, there, his uncle catches the eye of the recruiting sergeant for the imperial uh, bodyguard, who are being reformed at the time, and is recruited into the palace guards. So this suddenly propels this young man from the middle of nowhere into the greatest center of power in the known world at the court of the emperor. When, when you say, uh, I'm sorry to jump in, Peter, when you say yeah. caught the eye, that could be interpreted yeah. in all sorts of ways, sexually, yeah. militarily. What does that mean? Militarily, they're looking for good, you know, good human stock to join the palace guard. They want people who look like, who, are, who look like they'll be good fighters, but also who are militarily, who are physically imposing. You want your palace guards to be physically striking figures. Yeah. And you said that he came from southern Serbia. Would he have been... Uh, would he have looked like the kind of people now in southern Serbia, of course, is a complicated place, but would he have looked Slav or Roman or Greek? This is before the Slavonic uh, migrations into that part of the world. Um, they're, they're, they're Illyrians. We don't really know who the Illyrians Albanians are. Probably is what Albanians probably. A lot of Albanians would claim that they are the ancient Illyrians. Um, the family seem to be Latin speakers. Uh, Latin as a language has got itself quite heavily embedded into this world. But anyway, Justin forged this career for himself, ends up as head of the palace guards, a distinguished military career. He marries, uh, seemingly out of love, but, he, but, the, but the marriage is childless. So he writes back home and he gets his sister to send her nephew over, promising the boy an education and a career in the capital. That boy is the future emperor Justinian, who probably arrives once again from this impoverished part of the Balkans, in Constantinople when he's about eight and his uncle raises him, ultimately adopts him, which is how he ends up with the name Justinian. His original name is Petrus. Head of the palace guards, is, is that a euphemism for head of the secret police? No, no, no. It's, that, that, it, says what it, it does what it says on the tin. He's in charge of the guards units that, that patrol the palace and protect the person of the emperor. But Probably a very, pretty brutal kind of business, wasn't it? Well, he served on the military front line against various uh, internal uprisings and enemy foes. He fights against the Persians. This is Justin. Um, and uh, within the court, he also, well, well, during his service at court, he also has to help crush uprisings in Constantinople. It's a very uncertain and bloody time in imperial politics of the empire. And of course, he advances his nephew, gets him a job in the palace guard as well. In 518, there's a, a disputed succession to the imperial throne in Constantinople. And remarkably, the different senatorial factions can't agree on a successor to the emperor who dies uh, in 518. And so they agree on Justin uh, as a compromise candidate. The head of the palace guard. Head of the palace guard, very old man. They think he won't be on the throne for long. Let's just let him do the job for a bit and then we can sort it out next it's time. It's almost as if Stalin had died and Beria became... Uh, I mean, yeah. And, and then, of course, what happens is with Justin now as emperor, Justinian, his nephew, becomes an increasingly powerful figure until uh, through a series of machinations, assassinations, plots, attempts to build up a, uh, a, a, a support base 
in the capital. Justinian finally manages to manoeuvre himself into position to succeed his elderly uncle Justin when he dies in 527. So it's it uh, Justin doesn't simply try to doesn't simply appoint Justinian his successor when he becomes emperor. Uh, Justinian really has to um, machinate his way to the top through a series of quite careful political manoeuvres. Peter, the Times review of the book uh, describes uh, Justinian as emperor of the apocalypse. Is that just a headline? Is there any truth to that? Was there an uh, apocalyptic quality to the world that Justinian grew up in and then became emperor? Absolutely. Uh, he comes to the throne at a time where there is a profound sense of crisis in the air in Constantinople. One reason for that is that there is a, a growing awareness in political circles in Constantinople that over the course of the fifth century, the Western Roman Empire is no more. Uh, and that now you have these barbarian kingdoms in the West supplanting Roman power. And that really does intensify a sense of crisis. And that sense is very apparent to men like Justinian and Justin, who come from the most war-torn provinces that have seen barbarian raids in the preceding generations. But also this is a period of mounting Christian apocalyptic sensibility, with many Christians believing they are living in the last times and the divine judgment is imminent. And one thing that's very striking about Justinian is long before he becomes emperor, he is very interested in matters of faith, in Christian theology, and seems to be imbued with some of this eschatological anxiety. We are speaking with Peter Saris, the author of a fascinating new book, Justinian, Emperor, Soldier and Saint. Um, I don't want to make everything contemporary because I know that gets on serious historians like uh, you, Peter's nerves, but this idea of a apocalyptic, extreme apocalyptic sensibility that that you describe is it rather like our own, with our sense of the end of the world, the nuclear weapons, um, the the environment, or, or, or is it something that we wouldn't, we moderns wouldn't understand? Well, I think actually the environmental comparison is quite a good one because once Justinian comes to power. Uh, his regime will be uh, really rocked to its foundations by a series of events completely outside his control. One of these in the 530s, so about 10 years after he comes to power, is a very major period of climatic instability, which seems to be caused by a major uh, uh, series of volcanic eruptions, which leads to dramatic uh, fluctuations that will drop in, in, in temperature in the, in the northern hemisphere. That intensifies, this sudden climate change intensifies those eschatological anxieties. Then in the 540s, probably related, we have a sudden outbreak of bubonic plague, the first time the bubonic plague has reached the Mediterranean world uh, in the known history of the region. This will have a devastating effect on the empire, which will, as the plague repeats over the following uh, decades and indeed centuries. So there, I think there was, I think that uh, there were some similarities in mindset and responses there amongst contemporaries. But also, I think one of the more, more interesting comparisons is that uh, Justinian's reign also witnesses, I think, an intensifying culture war, which has some resonances with the world in which we live 
today. In particular, in elite society, there is a growing struggle over the relationship between traditional classical learning and Christian faith. And Justinian is part of a section of the Byzantine elite that is pressing ahead with a very aggressive process of Christianization, effectively trying to complete the process of Christianization that had been initiated by the Emperor Constantine when he first adopts Christianity as his favorite cult in the early fourth century. Under Constantine, we, so under Justinian, we will see, for example, it, uh, not just pagan rites being banned, but it being made illegal even to be a pagan. Uh, and we will see growing persecution of other religious outsiders, other uh, uh, sexual outsiders in what Justinian describes in his laws as an orthodox republic. This is a world where issues of identity and culture are really emerging to the fore of political struggle. It's fascinating, Peter. And speaking of uh, cultural battles, I want to remind everyone that if you want to understand what's happening in our world in a cultural sense, you need to read Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Um, they are supporting this show. We're going to run a short ad for Liberties. And then I want to come back and talk with Peter Saris, not so much about the dark side of Justinian and all the apocalyptic forebodings, but about what he actually did for Byzantium and whether he actually was a great emperor. So we'll be back in a second after this short ad. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out Liberties More at libertiesjournal.com as well as subscribe. We are talking with Peter Saris, one of the world's leading uh, historians of, of, of Byzantium. Um, he has a new book out, Justinian, Emperor, Soldier and Saint. So far, Peter, we've talked about Justinian as a reflection of decline and crisis, apocalyptic feeling, the sense of the end of the world. Uh, but he wasn't Nero, was he? He didn't fiddle while Constantinople burned. Uh, was he a great emperor? Was he a man who uh, who addressed many of these biggest problems? I mean, why did you decide to write the book about him? Well, I've always, in a sense, been preoccupied with him ever since I first encountered him when I was a student in Oxford, really back in the early 90s. And, and one of the fascinating features of him is that, as you say, he confounds the narrative of decline with which we normally approach the late Roman Empire by virtue of the prism of Edward Gibbon and his decline and fall and what have you. Uh, Justinian blames a lot of the problems Rome is faced with, or the, the Eastern Roman Empire is faced with, on the indolence of his predecessors. And he brings the imperial office remarkable energy and a quite extraordinary fascination with the fine detail of administration, government, and policy. Unlike Mary Beard's emperors, this is a very hands-on emperor who believes that through his legislation, through his policies, through his efforts, he can recast the world around him. Uh, we will see him take a much more aggressive stance to the empire's enemies and rivals to the West. In a series of opportunistic campaigns, he will take advantage of emergent weaknesses in the barbarian kingdoms of Africa, then Italy, then ultimately part of Spain to restore 
uh, Roman control there. He will try to impose order on Roman society through the overhauling of the inherited body of Roman law, uh, imposing an extraordinary new vision of legal order on the sprawling mass of texts on which the legal system of the empire had hitherto relied. He will, as I say, press ahead with his attempts to Christianize uh, Roman society and try to impose similar order on the theology of the imperial church, which is causing, uh, which is racked with, by, with disputes when he comes to the throne. So this is an emperor who is capable of, uh, of operating and, uh, on a whole series of fronts, legal, administrative, military, uh, theological, simultaneously, and with a, an energy which exhausts many of those around him. Bolstered, of course, by his very close working relationship with his wife, the Empress Theodora, to whom he is clearly uh, devoted and whom he treats as a co-ruler, uh, stating in his laws how he consults her matters of policy. And we see her lobbying the emperor to inflect the law in various interesting directions. So it's also, it's not just uh, one man's vision of empire, it's very much uh, the project of Justinian and Theodora as a team, as it were. His wife was an actress. Is there a bit of the, the Nancy uh, Reagan about her? Well, I think um, uh, Nancy Reagan would be turning in the grave if she were compared to Theodora. In a, she's not, I mean, this is a world where... I'm sure uh, Theodora would be turning in her grave if she's compared with Nancy uh, Reagan too. It, it, it's, uh, uh, this is a world where not all uh, uh, prostitutes are actresses, but all actresses are assumed to be prostitutes. Uh, just um, uh, the contemporary historian Procopius accuses Theodora of having been forced to work as a prostitute uh, uh, in her younger days. And this is sometimes put down to just sort of misogynistic abuse on the part of an author who's opposed to the regime. But what's interesting is that even sources that are very pro-Theodora also, one important source in particular, also concur that she had a rather shady past and may well have um, come, as one source puts it, from the brothel. So uh, this is a woman who has really had to face adversity and who lobbies Justinian, interestingly, to improve not just her lot as empress, but a lot of women like her. So we see Justinian being lobbied to introduce laws to protect girls who've been trafficked into prostitution, women who are forced onto the stage, and to improve the lot of vulnerable women, as well as orphans and the poor more generally. So there's one crucial theme of my book is that there's both light and shade to Justinian's regime. And the same Christianizing agenda that leads him to persecute sexual minorities and religious minorities and religious outsiders is also inducing him to uh, engage in unprecedented levels of charity towards the vulnerable, uh, the poor, um, vulnerable women in particular, and, uh, and the disabled, who appear really as a theme for the first time in Roman law under this very Christianizing monarch. You, you, you put it beautifully, Peter, you said that he confounded the narrative of the crime. In his head, and, and, and I'm sure you've spent some time in his head uh, writing this book, was he, was he relying on a, a Christian theology uh, to, to to rediscover, shall we say, agency, human agency, Roman agency, cultural agency, military agency. Where did he he get? Where did he discover this agency? He is, I think, I primarily of the view that the Roman Empire will not be successful in any of its endeavors, least of all military, unless it has divine favor. 
And the task of the human agency of the emperor, as it were, is to help ensure that the empire can regain divine favor uh, through cracking down on these groups and, and reforming itself in the way that his very hardline Christianizing vision demands. But also I think he is, this, this sense of the imminence of divine judgment may also be important in terms of his wanting to prepare his subjects for judgment. So he's in, he's, he, he wants in his own mind to cleanse the church of error and immorality as the first step to cleansing his subjects of error and immorality. I and mean, he, this is someone who demands a lot of people, probably more than they are capable of delivering, which this is one of the criticisms that is made of the regime at the time, even by those who are quite sympathetic to it. Um, but he's, I say, he's, a, he's, a, his fascination with theology is something which is there uh, uh, as a very deep rooted feature of his mindset and his personality. The other aspects of his personality that come across are, as I say, his, he's a workaholic, he's obsessed with detail, he has a fiery temper, he can snap even in the company of holy men uh, when they are uh, uh, failing to play nicely with him. Uh, he's capable of great loyalty, on the other hand, and he has a great eye for talent. And one of the reasons he achieves so much, he's very good at, at spotting amongst the men around him, those who have the abilities he sometimes lacks to press ahead with his policy agenda. And we see that in administration, in warfare, and in theology. He's a model of leadership in a world today, Peter, where we, we're looking for leaders. Uh, every week, every day, there seems to be a new book by someone out of a business school on how to be a good leader. Justinian is a model, isn't he? Uh, he is revered by some and despised by others. Uh, and he, I say, I think how, what, how one reacts to his leadership at the time, I think, depends to what extent you're at the receiving end of his charity or the receiving end of his, um, his, uh, punish, his punishments, as it were. Uh, and he's an extraordinarily controversial figure. But he understands how the dynamics of power in this world work. And very much, I think, a lesson he would have learned from his uncle and from his young days in the, as a palace guardsman, how the dynamics of the palace work. So... Uh, as with many other modern authoritarian leaders, for example, he's very careful to make sure he doesn't have an obvious successor so that there isn't anybody around whom hopes for regime change can coalesce. Uh, there are plots and uh, 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 conspiracies against him from the very earliest days of his reign. He's almost deposed in 532 in a massive insurrection, but down to the 560s, when he's a very old man, there were still attempts to assassinate him. You think, you know, why try to kill someone when they're that old? Well, a bit like, um, uh, you know, he has been compared to Robert Mugabe, which I think is to understate his, his, his high-mindedness. That's a bit unkind. What he has in similarity is he's very good at outliving his opponents. Uh, the one, Matt, the more you talk about him, the, the guy who comes to mind is is Putin. Indeed. And Putin is, is, is uh, and those around him, are they are fascinated with Byzantium. And I think there's a certain fixation with Justin. Uh, and certainly when I was uh, in the, when rising, I was writing the final sections of this book uh, in the opening phases of the Ukrainian war, Mm. And I was very struck by some of the structural similarities between how in the imperial court and the power of the palace in Constantinople operated towards the end of Justinian's reign and the sort of um, power structures that Putin has constructed in Moscow to help protect uh, his own position. Uh, and I think the and I think the sort of anxiety which one has with some of those in the elite in Moscow as to 
to what extent can this can their system survive should that man fall? What will happen after him? One gets very similar anxieties. Right, and the Russian Empire today, I guess, in a similar way, was similarly distant and connected to the Bolshevik Empire. Peter, mm. explain, and, and, and I apologize if this is a bit of a dim-witted question. Um, as a Christian, when was the formal split between Rome and what now is known as the Eastern Orthodox Church? And, and was, was Justinian a Roman Christian or a Greek Christian? Uh, it depends on whether you're looking at it from the, the East or the West. From an Eastern perspective, the real break, I would argue, comes in 1204 after the Fourth Crusade and the Latin uh, sack of Constantinople. After that, any hopes of unity between the Eastern Church and the Western Church Dissolve, I think come to an end. Uh, the, the two churches have become increasingly different in terms of practice and to some extent doctrine from around the ninth centuries, the ninth century AD onwards. Justinian is a Latin speaker from a part of the empire which had been was formerly under uh, papal jurisdiction. When his uncle Justin comes to power, there's a split. There is a, a breakdown in relations between Constantinople and the Pope in Rome. Justin and Justinian are committed to rebuilding those bridges. Now, Justinian will be willing to bully the Pope in Rome remorselessly to force him to sign up to the theology that he favours. But he is committed to the idea of a Christian church which embraces all Christians whom he regards as orthodox. And in many ways, Justinian builds up the office of, and authority of the Pope in Rome. I think in many ways it could be argued that he does more than any Roman emperor really to create the institution of the medieval papacy as it would later emerge. When he conquers, after he's conquered Italy, he doesn't care less about the opinions of the surviving Senate in Rome. The only person he regards as worth talking to, not only in Rome, but really in the West, is the Pope based in Rome. And that's gonna be crucial to the future development of papal history. The book is called um, Justinian, uh, Emperor, Soldier, Saint. Uh, we've talked about him a little bit as an emperor and as a saint. What about as a soldier? He was involved, you, you mentioned, in, in Rome. Uh, uh, he fought a number of successful wars. Uh, there was, of course, as you know, the war in Italy. Was he a great warrior? Uh, he, he isn't a frontline soldier, as far as we know at all, but he thinks of himself in military terms. As he's been a guards officer, He's been raised around the military top brass, ultimately. And when his uncle is made uh, emperor, uh, Justin made emperor, one of the first things he does is make Justinian a general. And I think Justinian is informing the development of Byzantine military strategy or East Roman military strategy from a number of years before he ascends the throne himself. He has a very joined up vision of how the different, um, the different military fronts the empire has to fight on uh, uh, relate to one another. And he has an analysis of power in the West, uh, which I think informs when he decides to send his armies to the West to conquer Africa, Italy, and Spain. He's learned that these kingdoms emergent in the West are at their weakest when there is a disputed succession at the top. That's when these king-focused societies are at their weakest. So in each instance, he strikes in very specific um, political circumstances that he and those around him uh, have identified. So as I say, he's, 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 he's obsessed with the idea of military victory. He thinks of himself in very military terms. He presents himself as a triumphant emperor, but like a lot of uh, military political leaders, he doesn't seem to have actually been on the front line himself. 
as I said, you 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 described him as confounding the narrative of decline. Um, Mary Beard came on the show to talk about how we perceive uh, great men. Was he viewed at his time? Did he have a a marketing department? Uh, was he like Vladimir Putin? Did he get represented in uh, topless on horseback? Was he was he perceived or was he presented to the people of Byzantium as as a heroic? saintly figure yes he so in constantinople itself where he, he he rebuilds much of the monumental heart of constantinople in his own glory to his own glorification after it's been destroyed in the uprising against him in 532 but particularly constantinople outside the great cathedral church he builds of hagia sophia he builds uh, he erects a, a huge column with a, a statue of himself on top of it in military costume, ordering the barbarians of the East to advance no further. And those two monuments, his Cathedral of Hagia Sophia and the monument of Justinian on horseback on this column would dominate the skyline of Constantinople until the Ottoman conquest of the 15th century. And it still does. I was in Istanbul earlier this year. It's, you can still go and see and yes, it. Yes, the statue and the column uh, are there. They are destroyed by Mehmed the, the Conqueror very soon after. Yeah, the, the church is there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then beyond the capital, he is named, he's founding cities, which is naming after himself and some after his wife, Theodora. Uh, he is naming, renaming provinces after himself. He is insisting that um, his uh, regnal date be the, the primary means by which all documents are dated. He's trying to build up a, a, a personality cult. Much he wasn't more, a shy fellow. Not at all. No, he's once again, I think partly because he's had to establish himself at a court surrounded by very well connected, very posh uh, um, senators who would have rather looked down on him and his uncle. I think he is very determined to advertise his name, his wife's name, and to convey a sense of their authority and might and to sideline the old senatorial lineages who still have an eye on the throne. But see, did he person, have a bit of a? Uh, you're talking to me from just outside Cambridge. Uh, did he have a little bit of Mrs. Thatcher about him? Uh, I think that what he would have had in common with Mrs. Thatcher was uh, an inability, I think, to appreciate the weaknesses of others. <laughs> <laughs> That's your polite way of saying that. Uh, well, but. He, he also was highly successful, like Mrs. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if she built statues like her. of herself. And she was a workaholic as well. And I think there are these, I think there was that obsessive uh, uh, quality uh, to both of them. Um, but I think in particular, I think he sort of strains to the, to the limits what is uh, practicable for an autocrat in a pre-industrial empire, given the limitations of communications and mm. coercion. And, and that's what I think makes him an interesting figure in the, in the comparative study of not just emperors, but 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 well, maybe we can call him the Mrs. Thatcher of Byzantium. So so uh, Peter, what's his legacy in terms of uh, Byzantium? As I said, you've written this uh, book, uh, a short history of Byzantium. Is he the central figure? I mean, we you, you described him as confounding the narrative of decline. After he died, did his reforms, his legislative legislative reforms, his new laws, his way of codifying Christianity, his military accomplishments and conquests. Did they give Byzantium a few more hundred years? His military adventures to the West would not survive terribly long. 
uh, and the Eastern Empires, Eastern provinces would, would suffer a major crisis in the seventh century caused by uh, initially, uh, once again, mounting warfare with Persia and then crucially the rise of Islam. So the Eastern Roman Empire would enter a sustained period of contraction in the seventh century. But that contraction, I think, is largely due to events beyond the control, not just of Justinian, but also other emperors of the period. I think we're seeing the, the, the uh, growing fiscal problems caused by uh, repeated bout of bubonic plague. I think there are mounting internal struggles associated with that. I think that the, the, the military legacy is the least important one. The most important legacy, I think, really tie in with his two main areas of consistent interest, the law and religion. Justinian and his law commissioners codify and transform the inherited body of Roman law and determine the form in which Roman law would survive into the Middle Ages, not just in Byzantium, but throughout the, the world of Christendom. The way, so in my university today, law students in their first year still have to study Roman law. The Roman law they study is Justinian's Roman law. Mm. Likewise, Christian orthodoxy in the way it would be received both East and West in the early Middle Ages is as defined by Justinian's court theologians. So in those two spheres of activity, his legacy uh, would be uh, uh, immense. At the same time, he provided an ideal, a model, of active and pious rulership, which would uh, fixate the imagination of many of his successors to the throne of Constantinople, as to he would fixate the memory and the imagination of many uh, Western kings in the Middle Ages and even Ottoman sultans on the throne uh, that they then uh, found and established for themselves in Constantinople. Uh, he provides sort of a, what my old tutor in Oxford, Cyril Mango, used to call a mirage. Uh, a dream of empire to which future emperors could aspire. Yeah, maybe there's a little bit of, I keep on, we've talked about Mr. Thatcher, Putin, Reagan, maybe a bit of the JFK about him too. You, you mentioned that his statue got pulled down by the Ottomans when they took Constantinople and transformed Byzantium into the Ottoman Empire. Did anything that Justin, uh, Justinian accomplish, did it last into Byzantium. I mean, is there anything if, if you were to travel to the Eastern Balkans today or to, to Istanbul, is there anything left of the world that Justinian built? Oh, one of the most striking is, of course, uh, the impact of his church construction, in particular, his great monument of Hagia Sophia. It's very important that when uh, Mehmet II, Mehmet the Conqueror, uh, conquers Constantinople from the Byzantines, he turns Hagia uh, uh, Sophia into a, a mosque, a high prestige mosque, mm. and uniquely preserves its name as well. So the architectural form that Justinian and his architects have pioneered uh, with his uh, construction of Hagia Sophia not only makes a, a formative influence on the future design of churches and places of worship in the Orthodox world and beyond within Christendom. It also establishes that as the prestige form for mosque architecture throughout the Ottoman Empire. So even when one goes into Ottoman places of worship, Ottoman mosques, one can feel, as it were, the legacy of Justinian there. Also, Justinianic Roman law would be a major influence on the development of Islamic law as well, after the Arab conquest of the seventh century. So his, his legacy and reach would extend even beyond the world of Eastern and Western Christendom. What about his legacy in terms of power and, and rulership? Uh, the Ottomans are coming back, I think, into fashion because of the way in which they devolved power and recognized the rights of local communities, uh, religious and uh, ethnic communities to govern themselves. 
Uh, is there anything of Justinian in there? Well, I think that aspect can be a bit overblown with respect to the Ottomans. Uh, one thing that the, uh, the Ottomans uh, uh, inherit, as it were, and recast to some extent from the world of the, the Muslim caliphates of the Middle Ages, is the system whereby uh, different religious communities have different status and different legal rights. The Muslims have the most legal rights. Other people of the book, Christians, Jews, have lower social rights, lower social status, fewer social privileges. That uh, sort of confessional state whereby one's rights of civil law are sort of determined by one's degree of religious conformity very much builds upon the much more confessional Christianized state that Justinian builds in the sixth century and transmits to both East and West. Just the difference is that whereas in Justinian's empire, the Christian Orthodox, as he understood it, stood at the apex of this system, in the world of the Islamic caliphates of the Umayyads and Abbasids, and then in the Ottoman Empire, the Christians are one, of, are one of the subjugated groups with fewer rights than the Muslims, who are now the apex of it. But the psychological substructures of that power dynamic, I think, are very strongly influenced by the Justinianic legacy. And finally, Peter, uh, we in America always can't escape what's happening here these days. Uh, you talked about confounding the narrative of decline that seems to dominate the public discourse, if there is a public discourse in the United States. Um, should contemporary or future American leaders, potential Justinians, do they have anything to learn from him? Well, one thing that Justinian was very keen uh, on conveying to his subjects was that the imperial system could only hold together if everybody paid their taxes, and especially the wealthy. <laughs> um, uh, you'll just tell that to an American audience, then, uh, uh, then give it a go. <laughs> but, uh, 